there's nothing magical about interval training, but it just can speed things up a little bit in terms of the time invested for the relative benefit. So whether you're talking fitness, whether you're talking body composition changes, whether you're talking strength improvements, perhaps these factors that are released from muscle, it's the same way. You can stimulate a given change a little bit more efficiently in terms of time with interval training, or if you include interval training as part of a regular well-rounded program, the overall benefit can be greater. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Martin Gabala. I'm so excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast. Welcome. We're going to dive into your expertise of interval training. And I think it is such a timely, important message that you have, especially during these kind of crazy stay-at-home times with COVID. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I think oftentimes we think of exercise as time-consuming. It's a time-consuming activity. We have to carve out this chunk in our day to go do that activity for our health, for you know all the benefits that come with exercise. And your research really debunks that. You have, I think, 100 peer-reviewed studies published, which is tremendous. And that it doesn't have to be an hour. It could simply be a minute done over you know, maybe a 10-minute period. And this message, especially like, I've seen so many people who once the stay-at-home orders happened, sat on the couch for like three months, right? And had limited access to workout equipment and really this kind of epidemic of muscle wasting and sarcopenia is like more present now than ever before. So can you share your research in interval training for the people who don't maybe don't know what interval training is? Sure, happy to jump into it. And it, you know, it's it's interesting. And I think a great irony of the current pandemic is while it removed ostensibly one barrier to exercise, which was time for a lot of people, although many people are busy stay-at-home parents who don't have much time even in the middle of a pandemic, but it also threw up these barriers for a lot of people around access. So unless you have an exercise bike at home or a home gym or something, so even the challenges obviously are, are, are multiple with the pandemic. But anyway, happy to get into this. Yes, for a long time, my lab has been interested in time-efficient interval training. You know, let's even start. I'm often asked, what's interval training? It's simply intermittent style of exercise where you go hard for as little as a few seconds, take a break, and repeat that pattern. It's been practiced by elite athletes for well over a century, and over time, I've been increasingly interested in both the scientific and, and athletic history of interval training. But our research is really focused on time-efficient approaches and taking interval training out of the lab, as we call it. So brief, vigorous, intermittent stair climbing or bodyweight-style training. How can that type of practical, accessible exercise be beneficial for, for individuals? And I think over time, 
our lab and others, there's really two main messages. One is that a little bit of exercise can be extremely beneficial. In many cases, a surprisingly small dose of exercise can be very uh, beneficial. And interval training is not only for elite athletes. Clearly, it's practiced by a lot of elite athletes, but many individuals can safely perform interval training, including individuals with cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, and many other chronic conditions. You even have in your book, I think there's like 10 different workouts where there is interval walking for the people who maybe are very sedentary and are like, oh my goodness, where am I going to start? You even have interval walking. It can be appropriately scaled to any starting level of fitness. You know, people hear interval training and they think of these all out as hard as you can go, gut busting, heart attack inducing type exercise. That's clearly one form, but at the other end of the spectrum is something as simple as interval walking. And in the book, a key thing was that any workout we put in the book had to be modeled on scientific evidence. So there had to be studies that we could point to that said, this type of interval training can be effective to boost your health. And the main health marker we are interested in is cardiorespiratory fitness or the health of your heart and your blood and your lungs and your you know, blood vessels to, to pump oxygen through your body. But there's been studies that have shown in, for example, overweight, older individuals with type 2 diabetes, even if you match two groups in terms of their average intensity, so one group just walks continuously at a steady state pace, and another group just picks up the pace a little bit and backs off. So you could imagine just picking up the pace for a few light posts as you're walking around the block and backing off. As simple as that sounds... It's better for individuals in terms of boosting their fitness, improving their blood sugar control, and even in terms of improving their body composition and reducing some body fat. It really makes exercise or the mindset around exercise more accessible and less threatening or less, less scary for people who maybe you know, have told themselves, well, that's not really my thing. Absolutely. And you know, even doing the research for my book, it was pointed out that People who are doing cardiac rehabilitation, so this is after you have a heart attack and you're going in to do uh, exercise rehabilitation, it's really hard for those individuals to do any type of continuous exercise for 30 minutes or so. And if you watch these people get out of their car, they take a few steps, they take a break, they take a few steps. Again, it's almost like climbing Everest for them because it's so challenging. They're really just doing a form of interval training. They're doing a bit of activity, taking a break and doing it again. So it is breaking down some of these stereotypes and rather feeling like a failure because I wasn't able to manage 20 or 30 minutes continuously. It's like, who cares? Take a break, you know, pick it up, do it again. Yeah. What are some of the metrics for measuring the effectiveness of the interval training? So I know you talked about VO2 max. And I feel like some of these metrics should be ideally in a typical physical, like we get our blood pressure taken. What are some of the metrics for measuring that? That is this working? You're, you're right. So, you know, uh, some of your listeners who are athletes may know the term VO2 max, as you just mentioned, which is the, the highest rate that your body can take up and use oxygen. And so that's typically measured at the end of a very intensive stress test uh, where you exercise as hard as you can go. But it's also the best measure of or a synonym for it is cardiorespiratory fitness. And that's sort of the cardio health that we, we all think about, the ability of the heart to pump blood uh, and the blood vessels to circulate it through the body. 
it's been suggested that cardiorespiratory fitness should be the fifth vital sign. So something that's measured in a physician's office, like body temperature and breathing rate and some of these things. The problem is that it's challenging to measure directly. You need specialized equipment, but there's some really good metrics for estimating your cardiorespiratory fitness, including one in particular, a very good online fitness calculator. Uh, If your listeners wanted to Google world fitness level, it would bring them to this calculator that to my mind is the best one out there. It's based on lots of scientific studies that have been been done in in Norway. And simply by answering a few simple questions, it'll give them a rough estimate of what their cardiorespiratory fitness is. And and so the, you know, we know that one of the ways to boost that is through traditional aerobic exercise training, lots of volume, but our work and that of others have have done some head-to-head comparisons. So if people do just a few short, hard sprints, uh, or they do some brief, vigorous stair climbing, what does that mean for the improvement in their cardiorespiratory fitness? So that's probably been our key marker that we've looked at. But we've also, for example, looked at indices of blood sugar control in individuals with, uh, with type 2 diabetes. And there's just a ton of work that's being done literally all over the world now, including vascular function and people with heart disease. You know, almost you name the measurement, it has been assessed uh, in an interval training study. Yeah. For someone who has never done a VO2 max test, how would you describe it through the physical lens of you? Like, how would you describe it or how do you experience it? Yeah, so you can imagine, maybe the best way to think about it is if you were riding a bike and you're riding on the flat, you start out and then you start up a gradual hill and that hill just keeps getting steeper and steeper and steeper. So at some point you're like, okay, I'm having to work a little harder here. You know, you can feel your perception of effort go up. You're getting a little bit more out of breath. And then at some point, it's the most steep hill that you've ever climbed. And at some point, your legs just give out. You literally cannot turn the pedals anymore. Or another way would be if you were at a gym, and whether it's a stair climber or a rowing erg or anything else, uh, or even you could think of running uh, up a gradual hill that gets steeper and steeper and steeper. This idea that the, the workload just keeps going up and up and up until at some point you're not able to sustain it anymore. And at that point, your body would be working maximally from an aerobic standpoint. Uh, and uh, we would uh, determine that as your VO2 max. So we talk about kind of like this point of failure, like the legs can't go anymore or that point of fatigue. How do you guys determine that from like a a laboratory perspective? Yeah, sure. And so one of the best measures is that simply a person stops. <laughs> so, <laughs> so reaching the, as, as silly as that sounds, reaching a point of volitional fatigue, a person stops or quits and, and, and that's fine. And that's probably the best measure. Now, sometimes through other things that we're looking at, for example, their age predicted maximal heart rate, we can sort of take a guess or surmise if a person really reached their true maximum or if they mailed it in a little bit. And for some people who are just starting out, it's common in our lab that we would do one or two familiarization tests and then bring them back in and do two more VO2 max tests just because there's a learning effect there the first time that you're doing it. But the other metrics that we would look at commonly are, as I said, age-predicted maximal heart rate. Uh, There's something else called the respiratory exchange ratio, which is just a ratio of the carbon dioxide you're breathing out to the oxygen you're breathing in. And we know that once that goes above uh, the number one, you're into very anaerobic metabolism or non-oxidative, which means you've reached your oxidative peak. 
Sometimes we will take blood samples. And so someone might have a blood lactate reading that's eight times their normal resting level. That's another indice. And so commonly in the lab, we will use a volitional marker with some of these more objective markers to ensure that uh, someone has reached it. The most objective criteria is that we're actually measuring oxygen uptake and we would see a plateau. So basically, we would increase your workload or make the hill a little bit steeper, but your oxygen uptake stays flat. So it doesn't further increase with an increase in workload. And by definition, that's the plateau in VO2 max that we've been looking for. Interesting. Is there a difference in the research that you've done with aerobic style interval training, like you're saying, like on a bike or running uphill versus a resistance style interval training? Like I know you mentioned burpees or something that comes to my mind is like a, maybe a 10 minute EMOM, you know, every minute on the minute kettlebell swing. Like, is there differences in like the aerobic versus like a resistance? There are differences. I think that the improvement that you can see in VO2 max or cardiorespiratory fitness is going to be greater with traditional cardio style interval training, cycling, running, swimming, stair climbing, rolling. That being said, body weight style interval training, you gave an example, I call them hotel room workouts. They can be extremely effective for improving cardiorespiratory fitness and you get the added benefit of improving strength as well. So I think of body weight style training as an excellent hybrid style of training. You know, if you were to take the a comparison at the other end of the spectrum, and that would be how does traditional heavy weightlifting compare with body weight style training? Well, if you were talking to a serious lifter or bodybuilder, they would say, well, I would never just do body weight style intervals. I want to lift heavy weights because that's going to maximize hypertrophy and protein synthesis. So on the other uh, end of that spectrum, in terms of the improvement in cardiorespiratory fitness, you can come close, I think, with body weight style training, but it's not going to give you the same magnitude of increase as traditional cardio style interval training. For those people who might be hesitant to interval training, some of your research has really shown a very quick physiological adaptation. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about cardiorespiratory fitness, so the oxygen delivery side of things, how your heart and your lungs, your blood vessels work. I mentioned at the outset, I think I'm a muscle physiologist, and so I'm really interested in the changes that take place in skeletal muscle. And the, the major change would be an increase in a component of muscle called the mitochondria, which are the, the mitochondria, often called the powerhouse of the cell. That's the factory where the fuels like sugars and fats get burned in the presence of oxygen. And so one of the things that can limit the oxidation or breakdown of those fuels is oxygen availability. And so by making more mitochondria, you can think of you're putting more workers on the assembly line. And so the assembly line is either able to go faster or each worker is able to work a little bit less for a given rate of flow on the assembly line. And so what that means in practice is People are able to do a same level of exertion as they did previously, but it doesn't feel as tough. You know, going up the stairs at a given pace is a little bit easier after you've done a period of training, in part because of these responses in your muscle, including an increase in, in mitochondrial content. And 
we have to measure that by invasively sampling your muscle or actually taking out a piece of your muscle, grinding it up, and then looking at how many mitochondria are there. So it's, it's not necessarily, it's a routine study for us, but it's not a routine study in practice for many labs. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing a lot of the listeners at this point are like, all right, what is the sweet spot? And I know it's different because everyone has a different baseline to start from. And I know you guys like to kind of play with like, what's the minimum effective dose? But if there was like a sweet spot, what would you say? If you have 20 minutes to train, I think that's an, that's a good sweet spot in that it's of sufficient duration. There's super brief workouts that are effective, but I don't know that they're the best. And within that 20 minutes, I suggested maybe doing repeated efforts that last three to five minutes in duration. And if you look at the science and serious endurance athletes, for example, that's the type of interval training that has been shown to be optimal to enhance VO2 max, which as you mentioned, it's only one marker. Uh, there's lots of individual variations. And so here's the cautious science scientist in me throwing up all these hedges. But th- that's what I would say. And, and, you know, certainly it's not like your listeners should train the way that I do, but most of my often my cardio workouts are only 20, 25 minutes in duration. And I'm just using different types of intervals within that 20 minutes, 10 by one, four by four with a few minutes of recovery, that sort of thing. Does the amount of time of recovery, like a shorter recovery time versus a longer recovery time affect some of the kind of the, the metrics that we were speaking to earlier, like the VO2 max, the... It does. And I th- let me say this, anything can affect the outcome. It depends, though, how important is that for a given individual. So if you're an elite athlete, you need to worry down to the infinite level of detail about your interval training program, just like you do about your sleep, like your nutrition. For a lot of us, it doesn't really matter. And and so that sort of stuff comes out in the wash. And, you know, I will often get this question, what's the best interval training program? And It's very difficult to identify for a given person, but again, for most of us, it it doesn't really matter. And, you know, you can imagine, again, I'll use the analogy of resistance exercise or strength training. If you leave recovery longer, then you can probably lift a little bit more on subsequent sets. But if you keep recovery short, you're not able to lift as much, but sometimes that's actually a better workout for you or you feel more fatigued at the end of it. And so I think within science, there's a real debate around what's the optimal rest interval and is it more about relative fatigue or is it more about absolute power that, uh, that you can generate? And you know, we can go down rabbit holes there. Sometimes it's an unsatisfying answer for listeners, but I think there's power or hopefully encouragement in knowing that, you know what, just get out there and do something. Vary it up is probably a good idea. You know, if you like the same interval workout all the time, okay, go for it. But variety is generally going to be better for you. So, so mix it up and, and not worry about the details so much. Yeah. The research you've done, has it been on a variety of populations, like sedentary, more general population, as well as more athletic populations? Yeah, we've, we've run the gamut. We have not done a lot of work on, on truly elite athletes. And so, you know, I, I put Olympic level national caliber athletes within that uh, realm. But certainly we've done a number of studies with uh, very highly trained individuals. And we've gone to the other end of the spectrum as well. I mentioned some of the work that we've done on individuals with type 2 diabetes through some work with colleagues. We've looked at individuals who have 
cardiovascular disease and in a cardiac rehab setting. So, you know, these are 60, 70-year-old individuals who are otherwise quite deconditioned. And then there's been uh, studies by others looking at very old individuals uh, in, into their 80s. So we've run a fair gamut, and the interval training researchers across the world have, have done the full gamut, I would say, in terms of individuals. There's, there's very few individuals where, in my opinion, and this is my opinion as a scientist, PhD trained reading the literature, not as a medical doctor or a cardiologist, but there, I think, are very few individuals for whom interval training is absolutely contraindicated. So they, they should absolutely not do it. You know, these are people, unstable angina and things like that. Um, obviously, at the individual level, and you would well know, making an individual assessment of the person in front of you is most critical. Uh, we can talk in generalities, but uh, what's, uh, what's right for me might not be right for someone else. So there's pretty much benefits across the board. There really is. And for my book, I did interview a number of individuals, including leading exercise cardiologists, some of these people that actually write the public health guidelines. And I would put the question to them, you know, if in older individuals, what's your opinion of interval training? And and the message was, if the question is high intensity interval training or remaining sedentary, Absolutely. High intensity interval training is better. If you're an older individual, time is not a barrier for you. You know, maybe doing a little bit more of the continuous stuff or at least intervals that are not super high intensity, that's going to be best for you because it's optimal in terms of slightly elevating risk during the activity and obviously offsetting a tremendous amount of risk uh, when, when you're not active. But, you know, I think the big message there is remaining sedentary is obviously the much greater risk to overall health. Yeah, especially during these times. Absolutely. (laughs) Have you found that there's a difference in the response to interval training between men and women? Our data is mixed, like a lot of the data that's out there. I, I think, so the positive message is clearly males and females can respond to interval training. Both uh, can benefit from interval training. That being said, there are some data, including from our lab, that would suggest women may respond less in some respects. So there's some data to suggest that the improvement in blood sugar control with females is not as great for a given interval training program as for men. Now, sometimes that's because it's really hard to match men and women. You know, we just like, do we match them based on fitness? Do we match them based on fitness to fat-free mass? So, you know, we could go down a rabbit hole in terms of how you actually compare. But I think, you know, short answer is, there's some data that women may respond a little bit less in terms of some of these health-related indices like blood sugar control, and also physiologically. We just finished a study that's actually under peer review right now where the improvement in cardiac output, so the pumping capacity of the heart, was less in a group of women than it was in men in response to a very intensive interval training program. So I think that's a fascinating area of research that definitely requires more study. On this podcast, we talk a lot about the muscle, the muscle tissue, this idea that the muscle is the organ of longevity. And I know even in some of your research, if someone just did one interval training session a week, they reduce their all-cause mortality. And going back to this idea that, you know, muscle is an organ, how do you see like interval training fitting into that? Because we talk a lot about like hitting your protein targets, you know, 
through nutrition, and then also you know strength training to maintain your your muscle. And when I think of that, I'm like, okay, so where does interval training fit in? As you've alluded to, you know, muscle is an, an organ. And so we're just beginning, I think, to understand all of this inter-organ crosstalk. And, you know, obviously things like myokines that can be released from muscle. Uh, my colleague, Mark Tarnopolsky, who's actually an MD, PhD, so he's a neurologist who does a lot of uh, basic research as well. He's termed, uh, or he's coined the term, an exerkine. So unlike a myokine, which is just something that's released from muscle, exerkines are these signaling proteins that are released in response to exercise specifically. And so, you know, why is it that people who engage in regular exercise have better skin? You know, that there's not a direct effect of exercise on the skin, probably, but maybe it's related to some of these circulating factors that get released. And, you know, if they're from some animal studies, you can obviously study a lot more tissues in animals. There's just fascinating research showing that more active animals have youthful body parts all over the place. And so that, I think, clearly suggests some sort of intricate inter-organ crosstalk. So where does interval training fit in there? I think the way perhaps interval training can trigger the release of some of these exerkines or myokines or whatever you want to call them in a more time-efficient manner. So in some respects, there's nothing magical about interval training, but it just can speed things up a little bit in terms of the time invested for the relative benefits. So whether you're talking fitness, whether you're talking body composition changes, whether you're talking strength improvements, perhaps these factors that are released from muscle, it's the same way. You can stimulate a given change a little bit more efficiently in terms of time with interval training or if you include interval training as part of a regular well-rounded program, the overall benefit can be greater. Has there been any research out there on interval training as it relates to inflammatory markers post-workout, right? Because I kind of think of like, you know, some people who go work out or train for an hour and a half, right? And exercise as a stressor and a stimulus, is that different versus maybe a 20-minute dose? I would say there's some work and it's definitely another one of those areas that's emerging, you know, given the widespread interest in inflammation, obviously, and, and its potential influence in many different chronic conditions, borrowing some work that's been done in the athletic field, people tend to worry about overtraining and often intensity is pointed to as the factor my own view or interpretation is that it's more related to total volume. And so many athletes who ostensibly overtrain, which is obviously, it, it's a very nebulous concept, right? How do we actually measure overtraining? Some of the markers can be high glutamine levels or some of these high inflammatory marker levels. Is that related to intensity per se, or is it the inflow of intensity on total overall volume? And I, I think it's more related to, to the latter what's the right level of inflammation to be induced? You know, I think we're, uh, we're learning more, we're seeing this with COVID, the whole cytokine storms that are generated in some individuals. So in response to the same dose or the same insult, some people really respond negatively in terms of a massive inflammatory uh, response. And I think it comes back to the point that all of this stuff is highly individualized. And so if we take a thousand people and give them the exact same interval training program, most are going to do better or improve markers. 
Some are going to do exceptionally well. And there's going to be a small group on the other end of the tail that actually gets a little bit worse. And those are the folks that we ideally would like to identify and say, okay, this type of training is not for you. Maybe you want to try uh, some, something else. And, you know, I talk a little bit about it in my book, this whole emerging field of metabolomics where we might be able to identify these chemical signatures in advance. And so we take a saliva test or ideally a saliva test and you look at the chemical fingerprint and you say, okay, for someone who looks like you or, or shows this fingerprint, the evidence would suggest that the best type of training looks like this. And so it might be a way to better individualize responses. And, and, you know, obviously the field of cancer is way farther ahead with this, but it's very common now that if you might have a tumor, the oncologist is going to biopsy the tumor, look at its chemical composition and say, you know what, based on tumors that look like that, we know that this course of treatment is probably best. Obviously we're, we're far behind that in the exercise field, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility to think that we may get there, at least with some of these rudimentary metabolomics markers. That's so interesting. <laughs> like a truly personalized training exercise plan for someone. You know, right now you go in, you know, we, again, we know generally that it were, and you know, another analogy that I'll use is investing. Right? And so most people invest in balanced mutual funds, spread the risk, not all your eggs in one basket, all of those things you might hear. And that's because we know over the long term, for most people, that's going to be beneficial. If you pick an individual stock or an individual workout routine, you may hit a home run with it, or you know it may not work for you at all. And so I think, again, for most people, it speaks to this variety in your approach to training to spread out the risk of both, risk of overtraining and the risk of some of these workouts may not be optimal for you. Yeah. You talk a lot about how you don't want to demonize long steady state cardio. And you also have, I think it was a paper from it was 2016. It was 12 weeks of sprint interval training, improves cardiometabolic health, similar to endurance training, which I was like, my mind was like blown away. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I'll, and so I'll talk about the study second. And so, you know, this one of our studies that got probably the most attention, and it's been one of our most ambitious studies, yes, it was essentially a 12-week or three-month training program where we compared one group who is essentially doing guideline evidence exercise. So 150 minutes a week, a two and a half hours of moderate steady-state cardio. And we compared that to another group who is doing three 10-minute sessions a week, so 30-minute total time commitment. And within each of those 10-minute sessions, there was only one minute of very vigorous exercise, three 20-second workouts. So however you slice it, the endurance group was doing about five times as much exercise and a five times greater time commitment, 30 minutes versus two and a half hours. At the end of the three months, whatever we measured, the improvement was the same on average. So the improvement in blood sugar control, very similar. The improvement in cardiorespiratory fitness, very similar. And so it suggests to us that how hard you work out is more important than how long you work out. That's the takeaway. And then subsequent to that, that's led to our work doing brief, vigorous stair climbing and, and that. But that study was seen by some as ammunition, if you will, in this war of interval training versus traditional steady state cardio. I have very little time for those 
debates, and we have never suggested that we should demonize traditional steady-state cardio or it has no place or we should scrap the public health uh, guidelines. And, and so I think the view is interval training can be very effective. It's not for everyone. You know, I, I'm, I'm an interval training proponent, clearly, but I'm not an interval training zealot. Some people don't like interval training. <laughs> it hurts. It's you know, hard. Like we've, we've <laughs> sort of glossed over this whole point that those few minutes or few seconds that you're engaged, it can be a very uncomfortable form of, of training. Now, for some people, they're more than happy to train off or trade off that brief, uncomfortable few minutes for having to do two and a half hours a week of exercise. But clearly, it's not the be-all and end-all. And another thing that we'll talk about, and this is not novel to us, is expanding the movement menu giving people more exercise or activity options to choose from, that's a good thing. Because at the end of the day, big picture, public health guidelines are great. Depending on the survey, 80% of us are not listening to them. And so if we can offer people other options that are grounded in good science, that's really the overall goal. And and I think it's starting to turn, you know, if you look at the recent changes to the US physical activity guidelines, and this has been replicated in the UK, Gone is the previous requirement that in order to count, a bout of exercise had to be 10 minutes in duration. There was never much evidence to support that statement. And I think the recent work around brief, vigorous interval training has further knocked that down. And so while I think the recent change to the U.S. guidelines in some people's minds was it was tentative changes, they didn't really change that much, but a key change was this requirement that it has to be 10 minutes. And so now the message is any activity counts. And I think that's a very positive message for a lot of people to hear. Yeah. Going back to your point that interval training is hard. It is challenging. It is uncomfortable. What do you think about it in the perspective of sometimes I feel like as a society, we've gotten a little soft, right? Like we can get any food, any time of year, we can turn on the AC or the heat. What do you think about it in terms of that? Like making, maybe elevating society to be more resilient mentally. I would agree. You know, once in a while you have to push it (laughs) and getting out of your comfort zone is a good thing for lots of different reasons, but including physical activity. So, you know, taking the stairs, getting out of breath, huffing and puffing once in a while, that's a good thing. And some of the messaging around interval training and those people who are much better than I at translating, you know, the physiology of exercise into the exercise messaging. uh, These are some of the things that you will hear, you know, reducing sitting time. Yes, that's good. We need to stand more. Yes, that's good. But once in a while, we got to huff and puff. And and that's not a bad thing. It's not telling you you're at an immediate risk of a heart attack. It's saying, yeah, you got to get out of your comfort zone once in a while. And that's beneficial for you. So, you know, taking a walk is great, but as we mentioned, picking it up for a few light posts or vigorously taking the stairs once in a while, that's a good thing for us. Do you have any thoughts on the fitness industry? And I'm talking more about kind of like group fitness classes, taking the term interval training and kind of extending the duration. So it's like a 50 minute interval training class. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess, you know, going back, I think interval training is a huge umbrella. And so what we have to do is start to get people thinking, you know, some people, you say the word interval training, and some people are going to think extreme, all out, crazy box jump program. 
and some are going to think traditional spin class. So it means so many different things. And that's okay, but I think we have to get people then understanding the different types of interval training. So there's, you know, brief, vigorous interval training. There's long, continuous interval training. That's almost a paradox. But I don't think there's anything wrong with a 50-minute interval training class and even branding it as, as such. I guess it's to what end? What are you saying about that? about that class. But I, I guess I have no issue with a 50-minute interval training class. Maybe just not every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and I, w- I would suggest then, but probably a 20-minute interval training class might give you 90% of the benefit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was listening to an interview that you did, and I think the person asked you if there was one exercise that you were going to do that was a body weight interval training, the hotel style, that it would be a burpee. And the saying came to mind that's come in the rehab world is from Gray Cook, the founder of FMS. And he talks about first move well, then move often. And for some reason, when I heard about burpees, I was like, it, I don't know, it just like came. And I was wondering, like, what is your thoughts? Because obviously a lot of the research has been on deconditioned people and there's a steady progression, right? So like interval walking and then maybe one of the programs is like a 10 by one burpees. What are your thoughts around like first moving well and then moving often? Yeah, I, I would agree 100% with that. And, and just for perspective, and you know, I'm, I'm name dropping here, but just the background on the burpee story was Gretchen Reynolds, obviously very high profile writer for the New York Times. She put the question to a number of exercise physiologists, the questions you know, that we hate to get, if you could only do one activity, what would it be? And I selected the burpee because you can do burpee sets and that challenges the cardiovascular system. Burpees engage large muscle groups. You're getting a squat, you're getting a push up. And so from a strength developing perspective, it was fantastic. Uh, It was not to suggest that people should only do burpees. Although there's one individual that I write about in the book who took up that challenge and he is now at over 150,000 burpees because he does them every day. But, you know, to go back to your question, no, I agree entirely. You know, you, you need to move well first. And, you know, you would know better than I to prevent MSK injuries and lots of other things. And so getting down to fundamentals is critical. Even when it comes to interval training, our advice to someone would be, if you're starting from a completely sedentary position, go for that walk around the block first, you know, do a little bit of preconditioning if you're able to, and then start to build the intervals from there. Yeah. You talk a lot about variety, which I love, um, because I think it's important to not just get stuck with blinders on down one path. And a lot of people ask you, well, what's the best thing for fat loss, right? And you often say, well, it's, you know, oftentimes what's going in the mouth, right? (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on like variety in terms of interval training as it relates to being like metabolically flexible? Going back to some of the themes that we've touched on, I think the key takeaway for people is interval training can be a time-efficient way to get places. So whether that's time-efficient way in terms of burning calories or a time-efficient way to generate metabolic flexibility. And so, you know, what is metabolic flexibility? It's this idea of using many different metabolic fuels, carbohydrates and fats being the main one, and probably one of the best ways to develop metabolic flexibility is to increase your mitochondrial content. And so by doing vigorous interval training, that's one of the best mechanisms to stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis or the growth of new mitochondrial networks. And so again, I I don't think there's a best way 
uh, to do that, certainly for the vast majority of us. But incorporating, in, how's this? If you do not incorporate interval training as part of your physical activity routine, I think you're doing yourself a disservice or you're not necessarily stimulating your mitochondria, hence your metabolic flexibility as you might otherwise be. I got to get on the interval training. <laughs> I mean, I do 10 minute EMOM kettlebell swings, 10 by 10 every day, but I feel like I need to create variety in that. You know, again, people talk about turbulence training or there's all of these different monikers for what it's doing. But, you know, what it's really saying is hit your body, hit your cells in different ways. And, and again, that's what I would come back to, right? I, I, I think the more the variety, the better. Keep your body off balance a little bit. It doesn't know what's coming. It has to adapt. It has to adapt and respond because exercise, all it is, is the stress like anything else. And so if you can present stresses in different ways to the body, it responds in different ways. And I think it's just going to set you up better for the things that you encounter every day in your regular life. Yeah. Is there any uh, research that you're doing or any research that's coming out that you're really excited about? There's a lot. So we're continuing to look at these biological sex-based differences. We would like to tease that out more. I, I think that's very fascinating. I would say that a lot of our studies in particular are what I call small proof of concept studies. So we're not doing the large scale randomized clinical trials, but that work is coming. And so we're moving in that direction, but there's already a lot of other very good laboratories in the world that are doing these large scale studies with large numbers of people. I'm aware of one study that's being conducted in Norway on older individuals in which mortality, risk of death is an outcome. Because when I get that question, why isn't interval training in the public health guidelines yet? It's like, well, the people that write the public health guidelines, they really want to see this grade A evidence. And it's fine to look at markers of health like VO2 max or insulin sensitivity. But ideally, we would like to know if people do this much interval training, is their risk of dying or risk of developing cardiovascular disease the same as someone who does the public health guidelines? And I think, you know, soon we're going to have the answers or start to have the answers uh, to those uh, sorts of, of questions. The other area of interest to me, and I'm, I'm not an exercise psychologist or a behavioral expert, but it's a fascinating area to me. How do we translate this type of research into messages for individuals? Because there's one school of thought that if exercise is uncomfortable, if it's above lactate threshold, if it hurts, people aren't going to do it. But I think what the research is showing is there's a big difference between continuous vigorous exercise and intermittent vigorous exercise. And there's not a lot of work on the, uh, on the latter, particularly from a psychosocial perspective or a psychological perspective. And I think that work is fascinating. Uh, and finally, I would say the emerging research on exercise and brain health in terms of risk of dementia, neurocognitive decline, even learning. Uh, my, my colleagues at McMaster have done some work showing that exercise breaks for students enhances outcomes. And they've done these really fascinating studies where they take a group, I think it was psychology students, and some students did exercise breaks, some just got to go on their phone for a little bit, and there was a control group who just continued. And they were able to show through standardized testing that the, the folks who did the exercise breaks actually did a little bit better on, on the tests. And so, you know, some of these things that we hear about almost euphemistically or anecdotally, there's now emerging science to, to support it. So cool. I imagine that doing a large 
scale study as it associates to mortality is tremendously difficult. <laughs> absolutely. Hence one of the reasons why we haven't done, done them yet. yet. But absolutely. But it's, you know, again, to bring it back to COVID a little bit, I, I think people are getting, a, you know, on, on some respects, people think of these scientists, you know, the traditional, you stand around in white coats and hold beakers and things like that. But, you know, these, these randomized controlled studies, that's what we're going to need with COVID, right? Now we're moving into these phase three trials and saying, if we give people this vaccine over the long term, does that result in a lower, uh, a, a lower risk? And, you know, that's to say nothing of vaccine acceptance and, and things like that. But again, you know, science is challenging. Science is slow. Science is messy. It's not black and white. As I always tell my students, you know, they come in first year and everything's black and white. They leave in fourth year and just everything's gray. <laughs> you know? I know nothing for sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, not unlike uh, medicine or chiropractic evidence, you know, all of this, you read the literature and you have to make a decision. Oh, some of the research says this, some of it says this, some of these phenomena we can't explain. You know, I have a very good friend who's a chiropractor and we'll have these debates sometimes. He's like, yeah, I know there's not all the evidence for that in some journal, but if I do this to my patient, they feel better. And I, I have to concede the point, right? And so people like you, I think you're at the coalface. You have to interpret some of the science that's out there, but then apply it in a manner that's going to ideally help folks in front of you. And so I, I try to translate it as well, but not to the same level that I think people like you are. Yeah. Can you share how, if at all, your training has changed since COVID and now that gyms are closed? <laughs> so for me, not a massive shift. And that's because I was someone who tended to already train at home. So as I like to say, I have a garage gym, but it's, it's in my basement. You know, so I have, a, I have a bike, I have a bar, I can do pull-ups, I can do kettlebell swings and that. And so I'm clearly as an exercise physiologist, I'm highly motivated to be active so I have no problem going in my basement and training or putting on sports and, uh, and getting on the exercise bike. I will compare that with my wife, who is also interested in physical activity and exercise. She's a phys ed uh, teacher, but she very much likes group fitness classes. She wants to shut her brain off, go to a gym, and have a fitness leader tell her what to do for 45 minutes. And so she has found it much more challenging than I and so she has, you know, moved to online training and someone is yelling at her through her computer or <laughs> iPad. Uh, so for me, again, not a huge change, but obviously a massive shift for a lot of individuals. And even now as gyms are starting to open, you know, I know you're in New York, which uh, now is relatively better than some of the other areas in, in the U.S., but clearly very challenging as, as people start to get back into the gym. And uh, this is going to be with us for a while. Is there anything that you have missed during these past couple months? And is there anything that you're looking forward to in that future time where this is behind us? In the midst of this, so I, I was the chair or the head of my department for 10 years, and that period ended on June 30th. And so now I'm actually on, I'm on research leave or sabbatical, which means I've gone from a very extensive administrative portfolio, including helping to navigate our department through covid to now being just able to focus entirely on my research. But that comes at a time when there's massive research restrictions at my university, much like many places. And so we're prevented right now for justifiable reasons from in-person, face-to-face, and certainly invasive research. So 
at the same time where I'm having more time to suddenly be able to devote to research, I'm being restricted from, uh, from doing that. And so we'll, we'll work through that, but that has certainly been uh, an immediate challenge that, uh, that we have faced, uh, and obviously many of our graduate students whose work has been impacted as well. Did you guys have an, like a Zoom celebration on June 30th? <laughs> My, I was not, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm one of those folks that having a Zoom party where everyone's a talking face on the screen and says nice things about you, that would make me cringe. <laughs> so, uh, and I wasn't expecting anything, but my, my colleagues did an old fashioned drive-by, which was just phenomenal. So I, I love that. stood on my driveway, my wife enticed me outside with some excuse with the neighbor and all my colleagues drove by uh, and still yelled nice things from the window, which was, uh, it, it was, it was wonderful and very touching and, and appropriate, I think, in these, in these times. If there was one message you wanted to leave the listeners, what would it be? I can't say this is novel that I came up with this, but I love it. And it's life is an interval event, so prepare appropriately or train appropriately. I love it. Right? I love it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that would be my, uh, my parting, uh, my parting words, but, uh, I, you know, I've, I've really appreciated this opportunity, Emily, and I hope, uh, some of what we've discussed is of uh, value and interest to your listeners. Yeah, it was tremendous. Martin, thank you so much. Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in first to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.